Is there anything in particular that you would say makes you sad? Maybe it's listening to a sad song, watching a movie that you know is going to make you cry, or potentially listening to a, an eventful science podcast that happened to just come on the radio at 4 o'clock on Friday afternoons. One such sadness a person might experience in their life is postpartum depression. Now this is depression that happens postpartum, and although I don't know what the exact definition of the word partum is, this means depression that happens after a woman gives birth. But the topic of postpartum depression is still a little shrouded in mystery, and today we're going to shed a little bit of light on that topic. My name is Louis Colavertolo. I'm a student at the University of Guelph trying to get a PhD in food science, and although it's not my direct goal to make sad and depressing podcasts, it is my goal to highlight a lot of issues that are happening that are being solved by scientists today, and those would be other graduate students a lot like myself. I know little to nothing about postpartum depression, but you know who does? Sarah Winkler, and she is a graduate student who studies postpartum depression in mice. But it's not so much the mental well-being of the mice that she's interested in, she's interested in how we can better study postpartum depression so that we can translate these things to helping out women who experience postpartum depression. So strap in and get ready to listen about the advances we are making in postpartum depression research. You will not need a box of tissues because this talk really isn't going to make you that sad, but you do need to remember that since we're both graduate students and we're both just starting out in our fields trying to make differences in the world, we don't know everything, which is why you're listening to another episode of We Know Some Stuff. Hi, Sarah. How you doing today? Good, how are you? I am doing good over here. Could you do us a favor for all the friends listening at home? What is your educational background? So I got my Bachelor of Arts BA in um, neuroscience with a minor in chemistry at Smith College, um, which is in Northampton, Massachusetts. And now I'm just right over the bridge in Amherst, Massachusetts at UMass Amherst getting my PhD in neuroscience and behavior. Um, I'm in my final year of that, hoping to graduate in the spring. Yikes. Fingers crossed. (laughs) What a time to graduate. (laughs) What a time to graduate or maybe graduate. Uh, Mm -hmm. Getting dicey (laughs) over here. I get that feeling a lot. So you are in neuroscience, right? And neuroscience, we've had neuroscientists on the show before and they tell us about memory and they tell us about how you think and neurons firing and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, your field of neuroscience specifically discusses postpartum depression. Mm-hmm. Let's hear, uh, give us a, a basic, like, wh- what What are we going to talk about today? So I approach neuroscience, I was trained as a behavioral neuroscientist, so I I think of the brain as it relates to behavior. There are, there are other neuroscientists who are more cognitive and some that are more molecular, um, but I think I have an area that is more translational and it bridges that gap between biology and behavior. Um, So when I approach studying postpartum depression, I'm thinking about biologically what's going on in the body to result in this behavior. Um, The other way to think about postpartum depression is to relate it to a healthy behavior. So I think about postpartum depression as it relates to healthy maternal behavior and, and somebody who is not depressed. So usually when I start these conversations about postpartum depression, I like to first think about what is not postpartum depression? So what is healthy maternal behavior? How does a mother mother and why? So maybe we could start the conversation there. I love it. Let's start there. I certainly don't have an experience in being a mother. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So I will do my best to follow along. Let's go. Cool. So I like to prompt when I teach this in classes or when I'm just talking with a friend, I like to ask why mother's mother So if you could think about it, why do mothers mother? It seems like something we take for granted, right? Certainly. Okay. I'm going to try to not sound like just a total (laughs) man about this right now. Um, Is it bad to say because they need to? Why Why do you say they need to? Well, they have a child and the Uh child won't survive if they don't. 
Yes. So it's a need. Am I, am I saying like terrible things right now? No, it's perfect. So yeah, that is like at the base of parenting is survival of offspring, right? So there, there are components to parenting that are unique to species and, you know, unique to cultures, but at the very sim- simplest level is mother's mother so that their offspring survive. Okay. So yeah, I guess it's more or less a kind of a need. Right. Yes. We're, we're trying to make sure that these little puddles of bones and muscles are going <laughs> to make it because these things, they can't do that for themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so there are lots of things to think about when we consider mothering. We're considering um, kind of energetic approaches. Um, so some mothers have large litters of 20 something offspring. Um, so in rats, you'll have litters of like 10 to 20 pups. Um, then you have horses and humans, primates who have one to two offspring at a time. And there are different kind of evolutionarily, um, energetic approaches to how we parent depending on the number of offspring we have and our environment around us. And so we see different caregiving behaviors depending on all of those factors as well. Yeah. I mean, I can think about like all the nature documentaries that I've ever seen. Um, you know, you, you see the horses, they just kind of like slide out and they start walking, <laughs> which always like blows my mind. You got kids, which I know nothing about like the age milestones for kids, but how long does it take for them to start walking? What's it like a two years, one year? I don't know. These I things. think like around a year for human children, but then you have horses who walk and they're run. Just, they're like galloping like 17 minutes after being born. Like yeah, a- so that's actually a difference. Um, so compared to rodents who have altricial offspring, so that means that they're born not fully developed. Um, they are born with no fur. They are born without their eyes open. Their ears are closed. So they can't see. They can't thermoregulate. They can't feed themselves. And so there's very different caregiving directed to- toward those underdeveloped offspring compared to a baby horse who can run around and find food themselves. Um, so when we think of caregiving, you also have to think about the developmental state of the offspring because it's that dynamic relationship between mother and child. All right. So what was that term again, that the term saying that the child is born under, you know, or or not, (laughs) you know, so the term is altricial. Altricial. Um, Okay. And then what's the opposite of altricial? Okay. The opposite is precocial. Precocial. Okay. Yes. So these are fancy words. So essentially the idea is that precocial animals are like horses. They're animals who are more developed when they are born and more able to kind of take care of themselves versus precocial slightly less able to take care of themselves and require a little bit more care. So then what are we as humans? Um, I would argue that we are precocial, but we still require a lot of care. Um, but we're born with our eyes open, we can seek food, we can call and respond. Okay, yeah, yeah, I mean, it makes sense. We have all five senses when we're born. Mm -hmm. Um, We, I mean, we don't need fur. Okay, fair enough. We we have hair. Yeah, yeah, I can see. (laughs) Some of us have a lot of hair, right? Yeah, but when when you think of, for example, like a baby kangaroo. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So... Yeah, that's yeah. right, because they, they grow up in the pouch. So they're they're mm-hmm. more or less rodents, aren't they? A kangaroo I a- mean as as far as them being cared for, they're similar to rodents because they they are born with essentially no ability to care for themselves, no ability to really sense the world around them. They just hang out in that little pouch, that little pouch. for a while. The marsupials, <laughs> they're like, I yes. mean, gosh, I am just going into a field that I have absolutely no understanding of, making <laughs> wild judgments about kangaroos being rodents. I need to stop myself before I get in more <laughs> trouble. Okay. No, it's good. I love it. I love it. <laughs> so anyways, joeys, you know, that that's right, that the, the little kangaroos are called joeys, which is the most adorable thing. Uh-huh. Um, so those joeys, they can't really like take care of themselves. All yes. right. So how does this link into how we look at a human baby? Right. So um, kind of taking all of that together, you can ask a bigger question of like, how does, so, so right now we're talking about 
a mother-child relationship just in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. But then we have the setting of where that parenting is taking place. So I like to consider how culture and broader environment impacts caregiving abilities. So for example, if a mother is in a highly stressful environment, she's going to approach caregiving in a very different way than somebody who is in a highly supportive, resource-bountiful environment. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that clearly makes sense. That's how we operate everywhere and everything we do, you mm-hmm, know, mm-hmm. from from, you know, writing an essay in a very stressed environment to uh, writing an essay in a very relaxed environment when you don't have a deadline. So, like, obviously, this affects, uh, you know, childbearing and, you know, how you raise a child. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And so you can then take it a step forward and think about, OK, so we have the vacuum mother-child relationship. We have parenting within this broader context. But then we're also thinking, okay, how does all of this influence how a child develops? Like, are they going to be okay? (laughs) Are they going to survive? Okay, fair enough, right? Um, It sounds like already off the top of the bat, and we haven't even really dug into it, we have a lot of factors in this already. Like, I'm a little bit overwhelmed. But I imagine there's more layers you're going to add, so go for it. Yeah, so I'm. it's kind of taking all of these into consideration. It's, it's what you need to think about as you're digging into this more neurobiological perspective because we don't exist in a vacuum. There are dynamic relationships happening in parenting, and not only that, but the child is developing developing as you're parenting. So there are lots of things to consider. Um, It's important to approach this, even though I consider myself more of a neurobiologist, I study rats, I look at the brain, I'm not really focused so much on culture and environment like that. Um, But it's really important when you're thinking about the applications of your research and the translatability of your research um, to key into those factors. Oh, interesting. So, of course, you know, like as a scientist, our one thing to do is always think about everything that's affecting something. Yes. (laughs) There's really rarely a time as a scientist that you're doing something and, you know, it's a straightforward path. Mm -hmm. I've almost never, I'm still to this day waiting for a straightforward path and doing an experiment. Yeah, there, there is rarely a straightforward path. Um, what I think is interesting from thinking about all of those questions, because we're mainly talking about healthy, healthy in quotes, um, maternal behavior and what that looks like. But then you can also say, okay, what happens when this behavior is disrupted? And so my research is looking into specifically how stress-related neuropsychiatric disorders impact parenting abilities. And so we can focus in a little bit more by looking at how depression impacts a mother's ability to parent. Um, So that's what my dissertation research is about. (laughs) Yeah, and I guess that that's postpartum depression kind of in a nutshell. So uh, could you clarify one term you said? It was a neuropsychiatric disorder. Yes. Are there other psychiatric disorders that are not neuro? (laughs) Um, I think that the reason we say neuropsychiatric is to emphasize the fact that it's a biological disorder, because I think when a lot of people think, oh, it's just a psychiatric disorder, it's just your psychology, um, you tend to overlook the fact that it is manifesting in your biology. So anxiety, PTSD, schizophrenia, those are all neuropsychiatric disorders. Oh, solid. And I love this. I've seen a lot of things in recent literature and especially like social media that says like, you know, you are not the disease. The disease is something that's happening inside you. You're still you. Mm. Um, So, I mean, that's, that's what it is. It is a biological thing happening in your body. Yes. Um, Yeah. It's interesting that idea of control and self-identity and like, are you your depression? Are you your anxiety? (laughs) Um, Yeah, because something, for example, when we talk about addiction, I think that a lot of people will will think poorly upon the addicted person um, when really it's, it's a disease, it's a disorder that's going on biologically in their brain. Um, yeah, so I think the idea of ownership and identity and, and mental health is really interesting to think about. Yeah, super interesting. And that's, you know, changing every day. I know that Oregon really recently, they just passed a law to decriminalize all drug possession. Mm-hmm. And the one thing that they said is that, you know, we're trying to treat 
addiction as a medical issue and not a social issue. Yeah. Um, so controversial to many. I, I, I know that there was a lot of opposition on that kind of thing. We are changing the way that we think about these neurological uh, disorders. Yes. And I think one of my favorite words when thinking about all this is intersectionality, um, which I think a lot of people think of when they're talking about like women in studies, women in gender studies. But it, it applies to science as well, where like we don't live in a vacuum. There are intersections of race and socioeconomic status and biology at your background, how you were raised. Um, so it's really hard to think about one thing without the other. And when you start overlapping these things, you get closer to understanding truly what's going on. Yeah, I mean, that really circles almost perfectly back to that whole idea of this straightforward experiment that doesn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yikes. Okay. So with postpartum depression, it's a neurological, psychological disorder. Mm-hmm. What, how do you study it? Why does it matter? What? What's the point? Yeah. So, um, this is a dis like a diagnosed disorder in human mothers. Um, it's diagnosed DSM-5, which is basically the psychological disorder criteria that psychologists use um, as depression with peripartum onset. So it's depression that occurs during pregnancy or during the four weeks following delivery of your baby. Um, this is a very uh, narrow definition in my mind. I think that you can have depression after those four weeks of delivery and it still counts as postpartum depression. Um, and Postpartum depression is not necessarily that it is depression that occurs at the onset of pregnancy or at postpartum. It's not just that. It's also depression that occurs in the postpartum period. Okay. Does that make sense? <laughs> uh, yeah, kind of, kind of. So you have peripartum? Yes. Peripartum's so, before. Postpartum after? So, yes. I would think of it as around so okay. it's around pregnancy and the postpartum period. Okay. So then yes. help me understand this. Is postpartum depression fundamentally different, or post and peri, my bad. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> is that fundamentally different than depression? No. Okay. <laughs> I think the distinction that is worth making is that it is depression that specifically impacts mothers in that postpartum period. What is unique about postpartum depression is that it is onset at birth. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that that is a valid argument. There are lots of biological changes that happen across pregnancy into the postpartum period that, of course, make the mom more vulnerable to developing these depressive symptoms. However, what I'm more interested in is not the actual pathophysiology of developing depression in the postpartum period, but rather how a mom is depressed in the postpartum period, it specifically impacts her parenting abilities. Okay, yeah. I mean, obviously, the mom is going through some stuff, but she is still more or less required to do this job that has got to yes. be one of the most taxing jobs in, in, in existence. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So how does something like depression Typically, and I know when we say typically, we can never really say anything is typical, but how would uh, postpartum depression typically affect the mothering uh, that is occurring? Right. So it's a great question. Um, and just a side note, we see postpartum depression at differing degrees. It doesn't manifest the same way in all mothers. Um, and you can have slightly less severe postpartum blues where typically right after giving birth, a mom will feel a little down. Um, and there are also um, instances of postpartum psychosis, which is very extreme postpartum depression. Um, and so what we're talking about is this middle level depression. And the symptoms that we're looking out for are feelings of hopelessness, um, kind of a, an inability to kind of synchronize your behavior with your needs of your offspring, um, feelings of not being a good mother, um, fear of hurting your offspring or not doing enough for them. You're seeing increased anxiety also often comorbid with that depression. Um, and uh, more extreme cases, you get um, instances of self-harm and um, suicidal ideation, typical with major depressive disorder as well. 
Um, so lots of things can go into <laughs> that idea of depression. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it to me sounds very similar to what someone would describe just, you know, depression would be. Right. And as you said earlier, it's it's not mm-hmm. so fundamentally different than depression on its own. It's just a matter of time of when it happens. Yes. So yes. then if you're studying the behavior, uh, first of all, I'm really interested in how you do this in rats. Can you explain that? Yeah. So um, there are lots of models to study depression and maternal depression in rats and mice. Um, so I'll talk about what other people do first, and then I'll talk about what we do. So uh, many labs will use a stress-induced depressive model, which means that you're using some type of stressor to make your rats depressed. And I'll go into what we do to measure depression in a minute. First of all, that sounds terrible, but continue. <laughs> so these are all, I'm going to make um, a big disclaimer rodent research or any animal research is conducted only with the approval of a big ethical board. So these are all um, ethical studies that are done with consideration for how to (laughs) treat animals the best we can treat them. Um, So that being said, we're not putting these rodents through any inhumane, stressful (laughs) event. Um, So one thing that some labs do is inject rats with um, corticosterone, which is the human equivalent of cortisol, which is our stress chemical in our body. Um, So when we inject these rats or mice with corticosterone, we see their stress response increase. So that basically is just a biological induction of stress. So another way we can do that is more behaviorally where we put the rat or mice into a stressful environment so we could make their home cage a little bit stressful by like not providing them with enough bedding or have it be slightly damp or have there be a stressful cage mate in there with them um so there are lots of ways to kind of induce this stressful environment or stressful biological mechanism in their body and stress itself will then induce this kind of depression phenotype that we're seeing. Um, I don't know if you want me to describe what phenotype is. That's a whole other thing we can get into. I'd appreciate just a brief description. (laughs) Sure. So um, we consider phenotype in relation to genotype. So if you think back to like high school biology, um, phenotype is the observable characteristics of any organism. So that includes its behavior, its physical form, how it develops. Um, So it's the expression of that organism's genotype and it's as influenced by its surrounding environment. So it's how we present and that's relative to our genotype which is just the set of the organism's heritable genes. So if you think of Punnett squares back in high school biology, that is your genotype. Um, So when I talk about phenotype in relation to this depression that we're studying in rats, we're talking about the set of behaviors that indicate that they're showing this depressive symptomatology. All right, so what are some of those markers? Yeah, so um, there are traditional measures of depression. So for example, there is a forced swim task where we place rodents in water. Um, Rodents can swim naturally, so it's not inherently a very stressful event for them, but we leave them in long enough to see when they stop swimming and kind of just sit there and the rats will float mice will float but so it's a measure of when they stop trying to help themselves and that helplessness is a measure of kind of a hopeless (laughs) depressive like symptomatology and so that is one way of measuring a depression like phenotype, but it's not the only way. So I think that's more of a traditional measure. And a side note, a lot of these tests were originally created in relation to um, developing drugs. (laughs) So um, if we wanted to test how effective an antidepressant was, we would put a rat in a forced swim test and then give them an antidepressant and then put them back in that test and look at differences. So all these tests are really attuned to determining of efficacy of drugs and not necessarily 
attuned to just <laughs> testing innate behavior. Um, so that's something to keep in mind. Okay. Yeah. And that's really something super important to clarify when it comes to, you know, anything really scientific mm -hmm. is that even though we have these tests that traditionally mark something like uh, depression, as you're saying, it's not always intended for that purpose. Mm -hmm. So when, when we do do these tests, we always take things with a grain of salt. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I so, appreciate that clarification like so much. Thank you. <laughs> Of course. Um, so yeah, then, okay, so how do we get over that caveat? Um, we try to approach these phenotypes from many different angles. So depression in humans doesn't only manifest as hopelessness, but we also see some cognitive deficits. We see deficits in motivation and in affect, so like overall mood. Um, so we can conduct cognitive, motivational, and affect tests um, in rodents to kind of key into this overall phenotype to see how the rodent is presenting a depressive symptomatology at many different levels, because you can't ask a rodent how they're feeling. No, you <laughs> um, can't. So this is the best way we can measure those qualities. Right. I know the one marker for humans, at least, I'm not sure if this is, you know, a trans species or what, but I know one marker for humans for depression is uh, the amount of sleep that you're getting. Mm. And whether if the sleep is deep sleep or if it's more shallow sleep. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's pretty interesting stuff. Can you measure like how much a mouse is sleeping? You can, although I would um, urge you to think about um, the fact that circadian rhythms, so our wow. like natural sleep cycles and awake cycles are different depending on the species. And some species do have more wakefulness or more disrupted sleep than humans. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad. It's just difference in species. Um, but you're right that we can kind of take into account the natural circadian rhythms of animals and then disrupt them to kind of mirror what's happening in humans with sleep disruption. Really interesting. Okay, so, yeah. so you said that this is what other people do. Yes. <laughs> what do you do? So our lab, I work with Mariana Pereira at UMass Amherst, and she is an amazing advisor to have, and she has a very unique approach to studying what depression is, um, in, especially in mothers, we use a phenotype first approach. And so we're thinking about those observable characteristics and we're looking at that first. Um, so the opposite of that would be to maybe manipulate some neurobiology and then study the behavior. So instead we're studying behavior and then going down to the neurobiology. And I, this is a very valuable, valuable approach that nobody's really using right now in studying maternal depression, although it's used widely in other fields. Um, so it adds a really unique and critical perspective in just understanding how these depressive behaviors and dysfunction and parenting behaviors um, manifest in the neurobiology of these mothers. And by looking at it kind of flipped with a phenotype first approach, we can um, have a more holistic view of many components that go into contributing to this behavior. Yeah, I know that uh, a lot of times they say there's like old adages about this kind of thing. But like, if, if you're looking for something, you're bound to kind of try to find it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this is this is kind of the opposite is you're just observing what's going on. And once you see it, then you're thinking, all right, what is potentially yes. causing this? Yes. Yeah, Rather exactly. Than causing something and trying to see what happens. Yeah, you're totally right. So our lab, when we talk about phenotype first approach, we're using a specific rat strain. They're called Wistar Kyoto's. So there are lots of different strains of rats. They're all rats, but um, different strains are bred to sometimes show a specific phenotype that you're interested in or sometimes be a, a control for a specific phenotype you're interested in. So these Wistar Kyoto rats were originally developed as the control strain for a spontaneously hypertensive rat strain. And through a series of behavioral tests, we realized that Wistar Kyotos are actually kind of depressed. And Aww, that, that is how... The red sad mice? <laughs> this is 
so sad. Um, well, the good thing is we're conducting research to help them <gasps> and humans. <laughs> oh, wow. If that's not the light at the end of the tunnel, I don't know what is. Well, it's super useful for us now because we have these rats who phenotypically are depressed or show depression-like symptoms as close as we can get it to humans. So they show this nice constellation of cognitive and motivational and affect-related deficits as nulliparous, and the word nulliparous just means they haven't had babies. Um, so as non-parental animals, and we see this in both males and females, and that depressive phenotype continues on through pregnancy and in the postpartum period. So we can specifically look at how that depressive phenotype is impacting parenting abilities. Okay, so like these are kind of your baseline depressed subjects. Yes. And you're trying to see how that changes the way they parent. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So instead of trying to say like, does their depression change? You're instead looking at them and saying, like, we know you're depressed. How does this change your parenting? Exactly. Oh, so cool. Okay, tell <laughs> me more. Cool. So my dissertation is specifically looking at various neurobiologic factors that impact deficits in parenting abilities. Um, so you can approach this question from multiple different angles. You can look at neurotransmitters in these maternal brains to see, okay, maybe certain neurotransmitters are functioning different, differently in these mothers, and that causes these behavioral deficits. You can look at hormones in these mothers because hormones fluctuate widely across pregnancy and into the postpartum period. So it, Maybe there's something going on with these hormonal fluctuations. Hormones also prime the maternal brain to act maternally. So maybe they're talking to the brain differently. And you can also approach it through a genetic perspective, saying maybe genes are expressing differently in the brain in these mothers. And this differential regulation and expression is causing neurons to function completely differently and maybe that's underlying these behavioral differences. So I've taken a really broad investigational approach to look at these three factors in my dissertation and just kind of try to pinpoint different candidates that might underlie this deficit in maternal behavior. Interesting. So so we we don't know what the deficit in the maternal behavior really is and you're kind of doing sort of exploratory work is that more or less right it's more or less right so we do know behaviorally what this deficit in parenting is and now we're trying to explain it neurobiologically okay. so behaviorally so i can do maternal behavior tests in our wistar kyoto rats um if you present them with slightly needy pups so these are offspring who are a little cold, they need to nurse, they've been away from their mom for about 20 minutes, which means that they're fine. It's not super stressful, but they do need some care. Mm -hmm. So when we present them with those offspring, you can see that Worcester Kyoto moms are far less maternally responsive than a control rat. So we use Sprague Dolly rats. These are quote unquote healthy moms who don't show parental behavior deficits and don't show depressive symptomatology. So um, these Worcester Kyoto rats, while they do raise their offspring, are less maternally sensitive and responsive, responsive <laughs> compared to a Sprague Dolly healthy mother. Okay, yeah. So more or less, just w what we're saying in all of this is that the, the mice that experience depression are going to have different behaviors in how they raise their young. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's really cool. Uh, do you have like preliminary results? Do you have anything that you're willing to report at this time? Yeah, of course. Um, so I have my first study published as of last spring, which was really exciting. Thank you. Uh, for anyone listening, that's like the hardest thing in the world to do. <laughs> um, yeah, and I have hopefully a couple more on the way before I'm done. We'll see. But um, so yeah, that first study I looked at was um, analyzing monoamine function in the maternal brain. So monoamines are chemicals, um, specifically neurotransmitters. Um, dopamine, noradrenaline, and serotonin. Yeah, we've and, heard all those before. 
Yes. So those, I think when, when I first think of those neurotransmitters, I think of motivation, reward, social behavior, mood, those kind of things. So um, I analyzed those three neurotransmitters in the maternal brain. So the maternal brain is the whole brain. So to behave maternally, we use our entire brain. But there are specific regions that are important for coordinating specific aspects of maternal behavior, specifically the medial preoptic area, which is near our hypothalamus. If you know neuroanatomy, you can figure I out where that don't. is. <laughs> Continue. So it's like medium low in our brain, but the region area is not important. What's important is what it does. Um, so it kind of acts to orchestrate carrying out maternal behavior. So it talks to cognitive regions, it talks to motivational regions, and it tells us, okay, be mom. <laughs> um, so this brain region is one of the many that we looked at in the study. We also looked at more cognitive regions. So when I talk about cognition, I'm talking about more higher level decision making, flexibility in rule learning, those kind of things, which is really important for adapting your responses and learning what it means to be a mother. Mm -hmm. um, so we looked at cognitive brain regions and we looked at motivational regions um, because moms are uniquely motivated to respond to their pups or to their babies. And so these regions are very important in coordinating maternal behavior. And so when we look at all of those regions as a whole and analyze the monoamine function in all those regions, we get a good snapshot into the activity in the maternal brain. It's a really broad level activity. Um, we're just seeing kind of messy, dirty levels of these monoamines in these regions. It's not talking about what's being released or what's not being released, et cetera. But um, it gives us a good picture for what's going on <laughs> at a very like broad level. So basically what, what we see is what we thought we would see. Um, Mr. Kyoto mothers have a different monoimmune profile compared to Sprague Dolly moms. So there's a difference in this kind of monoaminergic tone in these depressed mothers, suggesting that something to do with activity in these monoamines is underlying those maternal behavior deficits that we're seeing. Um, so more research would have to be go, going into um, the causality of these differences, but it's a really good first snapshot into understanding that there are neurobiological discrepancies in these mothers that seem to be driving this difference in maternal behavior related to depression. All right. That, that's super interesting. You observed that these mice were more or less depressed um, postpartum, um, and then you were able to trace that back to what's happening in the brain. Yes. And there is that opposite approach that you were talking about earlier. Super cool. Yeah, exactly. So uh, why, basically? <laughs> why I mean, do it? Like, I don't care if mice are depressed. Does that make me a bad person? No, not at all. I think I would argue that most people don't care. <laughs> so then why are you doing it? Why, why are you going to school for all these years just to talk about sad mice? Yeah, so it's a great question. I think um, it's really important to kind of center yourself on that why, or you can kind of lose focus in graduate school. Um, you get stuck down in the nitty gritty. <laughs> so my why originally when I first got into research was I want to better serve women's mental health. Like I didn't think that women were getting fair treatment in the healthcare system. I didn't think that we were fully understanding what was going on. Um, and kind of relating back to the interview you did with Emma in your last episode, um, women are not researched as much in neuroscience and in the context of neuropsychiatric disorders. And so I, I saw this and I realized like we don't even have drugs that are specifically designed for women. Like we design them in men and give them to women, expect them to do the same thing. Um, and moreover, there, like there are specific things such as maternal behavior. Like we're not thinking about parenting and maternal caregiving in the context of drug development. Um, so I wanted to conduct research that could contribute to this field and provide a more holistic and specific perspective um, so that we could better treat women, better yeah. help women. And, and what it comes down to is that men and women are different. 
Uh, we know that, right? It's not like we're, you know, blind to that. They, they are different. And the experiences that a woman has, especially birth, that no man, no matter how hard they can try, will ever really have, uh, <laughs> it's going to be different. So how can we just, like, treat it with the same thing? It's like putting a Band-Aid on a, on a burn and a cut. <laughs> You know, the Band-Aid is more appropriate for the cut, but it might work for the burn, but it doesn't necessarily <laughs> mean it's for the burn. Exactly. And it's really interesting when you think about um, specifically treating postpartum depression and the pain dysfunction related to depression, um, because if you were to treat that depression with a typical antidepressant, you're not really getting the treatment for the things that mother necessarily needs. Um, and there are a lot of risks to bear with that treatment as well. So the timing of antidepressants is a big deal. Often it can take months for an antidepressant to actually show improvement in um, maternal outlook and behavior. And if a mom is a new mother and she's struggling, you don't want to wait months. <laughs> um, so that's a big thing to think about. So we would ideally have a more acute treatment. Um, and then a treatment that better impacts the needs of a mother. So rather than just a broad alleviating depression, maybe we can focus in on a treatment that that works to improve parenting abilities or something like that. That's certainly like a broad concept. Could you possibly narrow down on to like what an example of that would be? Yeah. Well, so for antidepressants or what a treatment might look like. Yeah. Like what, what, what specific thing is a woman uh, who is going through this process? What would we need to treat in their case versus, you know, general depression? Yeah, this is kind of what we're trying to narrow down with my research. So the idea is with translational work, like the factors that I'm identifying in my rodents aren't necessarily going to be the same factors we're going to end up seeing in mothers. But what my work is doing is identifying candidates that we can then look into more in human tissue and in human mothers. Um, so I'm kind of that intermediate approach before we start doing any type of drug development. Interesting. So you're, you're laying the groundwork for the potential uh, you know, drug that finally addresses this problem that we've kind of just been putting a Band-Aid over for years. Yeah, exactly. And another thing to consider, too, um, with the current treatments that are out there, mothers, not all mothers breastfeed, but a majority of mothers do breastfeed. And there's questions about whether drugs are transferred from breast milk into the baby um, and whether that if it is transferred, if it affects the baby in a negative way. And so those are other things to kind of consider as well when developing a more specific treatment for this. And I will also say that the only, like drugs aren't the only treatment. <laughs> so by conducting this research, we can also better tailor therapies um, and just better understand how to talk about maternal behavior and talk about depression. So, um, what, from what I've read, I think one of the best treatments for major depressive disorder in general is a combination of an antidepressant with some type of therapy. Um, and so I don't know, having some type of specific outlook like that for mothers would be really beneficial. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they have child therapists, they have adolescent therapists, they have adult therapists. I've even read some things where they have like geriatric therapists. Yeah. So why should we not have, uh, you know, postpartum therapists? Yeah. And what's really interesting, oh, you're bringing a really fun point, I think. Um, so we live in a very like technocentric culture where in America specifically, um, mothers are sometimes cared for 24 hours in the hospital after having their baby. And some mothers don't even have maternity leave in their jobs. And so we're in this environment that doesn't really support maternal health. We care about the baby's health. There's not that mirrored version for the mother versus cultures that focus more on caring for the mother and making sure that they have the support that they need. So this is more of an ethno kinship culture um, where the goal is to have the mother have a smooth transition into motherhood and reduce their psychological tension and needs. Um, so in those cultures, which we mostly see in like Asia and Africa and Eastern Europe, um, 
the mothers are put on mandatory rest. They are given more emotional and physical support by family members in the broader community. Um, so just having that culture of support versus this culture of not support, of having the mother's care come second, um, you see big discrepancies in manifestation of depression because of that. Um so I think that's a really interesting point. That, that makes total sense. You were talking about stressors, right? A stressful environment for the rats would be the dry cage, the, you know, the temperature, the, the this, the hostile mate. It's in a very similar way that there could be a stressful situation for the mother. She has mm-hmm. to return to work in two weeks. She has to, uh, you know, now worry about how she's going to afford rent next month because now she has to buy diapers, da, 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 da. Exactly. So that is super interesting in almost in a way that our Western society um, and, and really all Western countries, you know, Canada and America combined, mm-hmm. uh, we're almost inducing a more stressful environment. So and, and I don't I don't expect you to have this information off the top of your head. Do you possibly have any number out there that could say like the comparison between Western culture and Eastern culture? Yeah, I, I do. Actually, oh, I teach. Um... Of course you do. <laughs> Um, so I teach a class whenever I have a chance to teach. I mean, a graduate student, we rarely teach our own classes, but I've had the lucky opportunity to be able to teach a few of my own classes in graduate school. And I always make sure to include a lecture on cultural perspectives, cross-cultural perspectives and parenting. So I do have some numbers on that. And what we see is that it's variable and we can't only pinpoint it on one thing. So social support is a big factor. Stress is a big factor, socioeconomic status, et cetera. But we do see, especially in America, um, while it's around 20% of new mothers develop postpartum depression, we we predict that about 50% of mothers who have postpartum depression aren't reporting it. So the numbers are really higher than that. It might be something like 36% or 40% of mothers have some type of postpartum depression. Yeah. It's a staggering number. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and for, for a lot of people, even if you do know you have it, you don't report it, but there's a lot of people out there who don't even know that they have it, but do have it. Yes. Yeah. So there's a big, it's a discrepancy with access to healthcare, mm-hmm. education about what it, what to expect when becoming a mother. Um, so definitely that will influence report levels. But there's also um, a culture of taboo around postpartum depression where there's some embarrassment and shame and fear around being a depressed mother because it's this idea through through anecdotal evidence that I've I've read in like more qualitative studies that mothers don't want to seem sad or seem like they don't have a connection with their baby because that means that they're a bad mother, which is not true. <laughs> but there's still this um, taboo around it that is getting better, but is not better yet. And um, I think talking about it more in platforms like this will will increase awareness and increase support for these mothers so that they seek out support for themselves. Um, But I do want to mention, too, that there's this huge kind of racial, ethnic discrepancy as well. Um, African-American and Hispanic women are twice as likely to experience postpartum depression, um, and those women are also more likely to experience higher rates of suicidal ideation. They're also less likely to report their symptoms. And this is due to a large mix of intersectioning factors, often having to do with racial stress in their environment, um, but also lower socioeconomic status, lack of access to insurance or behavioral health, not access to healthcare providers that would be able to treat these types of issues, inability to take time off of work. So lots of that goes into rates of depression and rates of treatment of depression. That's crazy. I, I didn't know that there was such a, a large discrepancy. I mean, there, there often is a large discrepancy when we're talking about, you know, race and ethnicity. Um, mm-hmm. But it, to, to take something that you would think it would be as universal as motherhood mm-hmm. um, and then to really break it down and see how it differs between one part of the world and, and one race and the other is fascinating information. You are really doing intersectionality at its best. You are mixing <laughs> neuroscience with social economics. Yeah, I'm trying my best. Well, as somebody who studies rats, I'm still trying to bridge <laughs> back out into 
understanding humans better. Interesting. Oh my God, that is honestly so fascinating. Uh, Unfortunately, a lot of this episode was about depression and was sad. Can you give us something so we aren't depressed after we're done listening to this episode? Give, give, Give me a little ray of sunshine. Of course. Um, Yeah, it's really easy to get bogged down in all of this when you're like, oh, everyone's sad and no one's helping each other. Um, One ray of sunshine I can give you is that there are amazing researchers who are doing really great work to better treatment, better understanding. um, And it's it's only becoming more prolific. So we're going to see better treatment, better focus like very soon. So that that is one ray of sunshine I can give you. Yeah, well, thank you. That's you. You're doing this. Like, it's, it's hard to take credit for these things, but thank you. <laughs> oh, you're very welcome. Um, the, the other thing I can give you is that depression, while it's a difficult thing to deal with and overcome, it's not 100% debil- debilitating. So having a mother who is depressed, that does not mean that you won't be a viable person in the world. Um, so I think that's really something we need to think about. Sure, people might be a little bit more anxious. <laughs> people might have a slightly difficult time with social or emotional development if they have a highly depressed mother, but they will be fully <laughs> viable people in this world. And there's lots of support to help better depression in mothers. Um, so if if we know how to seek it out and if we know how to increase and better that type of treatment, I, it will only continue getting better. So there's some hope. It's not like the world has ended. If you're depressed or have a depressed parent, life will continue to go on and you'll likely be okay. That's beautiful. I, I really <laughs> do appreciate it. That was the ray of sunshine that I was hoping for and even a little bit more. <laughs> Good. I'm glad. All right. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. That was insanely uh, informational. I, I learned so much that my my brain was completely unaware of all of these things. Oh, good. I'm so glad. I really appreciate it. So thank you so much. Yeah, of course. Anytime. Well, we sure hope we didn't make you too sad with our conversation that we had with Sarah today. But we did learn a lot about postpartum depression and how we can actually use mice to study this kind of event that might happen in a woman's life. But since you listened to an episode of We Know Some Stuff, it's time for that part of the episode where we admit that we don't know all the stuff. So we always like to include a fact check and a little re-explanation where needed. With that being said, we didn't find anything that really needed correcting. Nothing came to our attention when we reviewed it a few times, and we don't think that we misspoke anything too major. But, as with science goes, there may be things in the future that prove us completely wrong, and then we'll have to review, change our positions, and try again. And that's really the scientific process at its best. But, in efforts to show you that we truly do not know everything, here is a short clip to finish out the episode with Sarah when she, well, had to Google a term to get us through the rest of the conversation. Um, I'm going to have to Google it. Can I oh, Google it? Yeah, you can, and I can edit around it. Don't worry. <laughs> okay, cool. Because um, I only really talk about altricial offspring. Right? Like, if you only talk about it, why should you know all the other terms? It's ridiculous for people to expect you to <laughs> but, everything. But I do know it. As soon as I see it, I'm going to be like, oh, uh, yeah. That's that. for that one. It's a textbook term from, like, you know, five years ago from undergrad. Yeah. So there you have it, proof that we don't know everything, and also proof that when I say, oh yeah, I'll edit around it, it means I'll probably just include it in the ending of the episode. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of We Know Some Stuff.